I really appreciate uh, Darcy's prayer, but I would like to have another chance to pray with you. So would you bow with me and let's ask God's help that this would be a, a good investment of our time. Lord, we're not here because we don't have other things to do. Some of these students are paying a, a significant price to be here tonight, and I thank you for it. And so we want our time to be multiplied and effective. We do ask for protection from Satan and his wiles to deceive and discourage, corrupt, cause us to stumble, have wrong affections and wrong motives, misunderstandings. So I pray that you would establish the angel of the Lord around this place as we fear you and trust you just now. Lord, would you bring to my mind those things that would be prophetically appointed for these people who are gathered here so that this night's need for this juncture in this life would be met. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray, and do things that we can't imagine. I pray that you'd send out laborers into your harvest, and I pray that you would give guidance to those at points of complexity. And I pray for those who have an awful time praying and lingering in your presence and drawing near to you and laying hold on you and trusting you for significant power and work in their lives will gain that ability. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My purpose tonight is to talk about prayer. But in the broader sense, um, I, I see tonight and tomorrow morning as an effort to translate this morning into good news. Because I know that a message like this morning's lands on people who haven't thought about it as much as they might have as a strange thing, the God-centeredness of God. And if you'll give me Tonight and tomorrow, and especially tomorrow night, I think you will be able to come away and say, that's some of the best news I've ever heard, that strange thing that I heard this morning. That's really good news. The reason I didn't include Wednesday morning is because, in a sense, uh, this morning, tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow night, are to persuade you that it's good enough news to die for, which is what I want to talk about on Wednesday morning. So Wednesday morning will be a hard word, and I believe a very, very crucial word for world evangelization. So that's, in my head, plan, and it means a lot to me that you're here tonight, and I thank you for coming, that you're willing to give me another chance to try to make plain some things that are very precious to me and that the Lord has, I believe, worked into my head and heart over the years since I left Wheaton in 1968. So, as you might imagine, I walk around the campus here and have all kinds of queasy emotions. This is my 30th, whatever they call it, reunion that I can't ever come to because I'm a pastor and don't leave on the weekends. But it means a lot to me to be back at times like this. And thank you for making good 
I think the title that I gave tonight was something like um, How Not to Serve God uh, in Going and Sending. Let me try to set a stage for why that title is the way it is. Why or how not to serve God. Acts 17.25 has proved to be a very liberating, very shocking verse in my life uh, where it says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So God is not served by human hands. So you must be very careful not to serve God. That's where the title came from. Beware of serving God. Now that of course, is surprising because the Apostle Paul identifies himself over and over again as a servant and a slave of God. And we know that it has a great and esteemed history in the church and it has warrant in the New Testament. And so a verse like that is shocking. It's troubling. What am I to do then? God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And I hope you can hear in that little phrase, as though he needed anything, a lot flowing out of this morning's message. Because if you got it this morning, what you will not only feel is a kind of weight, that this God is huge and he's awesomely taken up with his own glory, but also that he is totally self-sufficient, does not need us so that we are free from having to serve him as though he needed anything. In other words, just a slight shift will turn this morning's heavy word into liberty. God is not served. This kind of God that we talked about this morning will not be worked for. The gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It is a help-available sign. And so when you begin to just shift your thoughts around a little bit, you begin to say, oh, that really could be good news. That kind of God could be good news. And a verse like this, I think, comes really close to saying it is really good news. Let me give you another one. Same direction. Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. So don't you dare contradict the point of the incarnation by serving Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served. So it's amazing, isn't it, that there are these warnings in the New Testament lest we begin to serve Him 
in a way that would somehow dishonor him or compromise his commitment to work for us. I'm coming into this world not to get you to work for me. I'm coming into this world because you are paralyzed and sick and dead so that I can work for you and save you and awaken you and give you life and give you strength and give you guidance and give you joy. That's why I'm coming. So don't work for me. Let me work for you. There is a an ethic in the world uh, that I don't think understands how to serve Jesus. How to serve Jesus. It doesn't understand these warnings. You, there are different names for it. I've called it the debtor's ethic in the book Future Grace. I like to call it the Tonto ethic. Anybody know who Tonto is? Raise your hand if you ever heard of Tonto. Lone Ranger, Tonto, I owe silver away. This really dates me, I know. I was about 10 when I watched these programs on TV and, and, uh, right up on the hill and silver comes up, the white horse on his back legs, I owe silver away! And the silver bullets and, oh, it's a great shot. And Tonto is this Indian sidekick. Could never do this today. It's totally politically incorrect the way they had Tonto. But Tonto was a really admirable character. However, there was only one show. There were probably ten years that this thing went on. I don't know how long the show lasted. But Tonto was Lone Ranger's sidekick and got him out of scrapes over and over and over again. How did Tonto get attached to the Lone Ranger? There was only one show where that flashback was given. In the Indian culture, if you um, saved a man's life, then you were bound to that person to keep on doing that forever, evidently. So it showed this scrape, and he got him out of it, and then he just attached himself to the Lone Ranger and... And that was the motif of the show for the rest of my years as a kid. And he would get him out of scrapes. So the mentality of Tonto was, um, actually it was, I guess, that the Lone Ranger got him out of a scrape. And then he was bound to serve the Lone Ranger. So he wanted to spend the rest of his life paying back the Lone Ranger. Now, I call it the Tonto ethic because that's the way a lot of people relate to God. God saved you, right? He saved you at a tremendous price to himself and his son. Now, how do you live for him? Well, you spend the rest of your life trying to pay him back. Gave, he gave his life for me. You, what hast thou given for him? And there's this... Subtle, non-articulated sense that I'm in debt. And I gotta work like a mortgage paying off debt. So obedience is mortgage payments. 
on this debt I owe to God. That's what these texts are meant to warn against. That's not a good way to relate to God. And I, I want to give you several reasons why here. Why you shouldn't get involved in the debtor's ethic or the Tonto ethic and spend your life doing missions, going to Kazakhstan to pay him back. There's several reasons. Here's number one. This is kind of a theological reason that you need to ponder. The debtor's ethic, the Tonto ethic, is impossible. It's impossible because every act of obedience you perform, thinking to make up some of the debt you owe, only puts you deeper in debt if you believe in grace that enables obedience. Deep theological things here going on. If you believe, of course, that it doesn't take sovereign grace to work obedience in your life, but rather you, by your own autonomous, free, sovereign will, out of your creative resources, produce obedience and offer them up to God, and he receives them as a gift, then you might make up some of the debt. But if you believe 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may always, having all sufficiency, abound in every good work. That's a long sentence. Let me collapse it down so you get it. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you will be able to perform every good work he has for you. Grace enables obedience. So, if you conceive of obedience as trying to make up your debt to grace, it doesn't work. You go deeper in debt with every act of obedience. Isn't that wonderful? Because God's not into settling debts with you by your obedience. Grace pays debt. It doesn't create more debts. The cross is given not to make you a debtor, but you're already a debtor. Sin is debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You're in debt to God because of sin. Grace comes to pay debt. And every act of obedience you perform in response to grace and by the power of grace puts you further in debt if you think of it the other way. So my first reason for why you should not do the Tonto ethic thing or the debtor's ethic is it's impossible. Second reason. If it were possible, grace would no longer be grace. It would be a business transaction. God gives you this. You now pay back this. And if you can can succeed at paying back, then he would say, okay, accounts are settled. I gave this. You gave that. Even Stephen. That's not grace anymore. So if you want to nullify grace, you can go ahead and do the Tonto ethic thing 
and do the debtor's ethic and try to go and be a missionary or be a sender or be a sacrificial urban worker or something in order to pay God back for all the good things he's done for you, you can try to do that. But all you will wind up doing is nullifying grace and making yourself colossally miserable. Here's the third reason why you should not do the debtor's ethic, but find another way, which I'm moving toward. It minimizes future grace while focusing on past grace. Now, past grace are all the good things God has done for you up to this moment in your life, especially his death on the cross in his son. That was the greatest point of past grace. And so people tend to, when they work out of the Tonto ethic, they tend to have a backward-oriented look to what God has done. Say, he died for me, he rose for me, he reigns for me, and he has done so many good things for me. Then they turn around, and the way it's usually articulated so that it doesn't sound as bad is, out of gratitude, there's a key word that makes it sound good, out of gratitude, they will now do this on the basis of that. So you could call it the gratitude ethic. I used to call it the gratitude ethic, and so many people got upset at me because gratitude is a good thing in the Bible that I quit talking about the gratitude ethic. But the word gratitude is usually put on it subtly, unintentionally, I think, the number one dominant motif of obedience in evangelicalism is gratitude. Obey out of gratitude. Do such and such out of gratitude. Now, I say that ethic minimizes future grace. Now, future grace is the grace that begins right now and continues coming to me forever. About eight seconds of it has now become past grace. My heart kept beating. My brain is still working. Nobody has dropped dead in this room. My lungs are breathing. That's all grace. Isn't that all grace? That you're alive right now? Sometimes I'll lie. I'm, I'm, I'm strange in these ways. I'll lie in bed at night and I'll put my hand on my pulse here like this. And I'll look at the clock and I'll take my pulse. And it hits me sometimes with an overwhelming force. I don't have anything to do with making that thing do. Nothing. If it, it, it could just stop. I, I don't start it. I don't stop it. That's grace. So, if I make it to the end of this message, it will be grace. It will be future grace. Future grace is constantly cascading over the present into the past as we move into the future. And so you can look back with gratitude, and you must have gratitude for all the grace that's gathering in this great pool in the past that you can look back on with memory. I, I assume that's what the last line of that song did. Look at our lives. 
has a book for that. I'd rather not do that. I want to look at God's life. But always wanting to put the best face on music lyrics. <laughs> I say, okay, look at our lives must mean look at the grace of God in this room. I would guess that most of you are believers here. That's a miracle. Look at that. Look at that. Now, future grace is out there. The promises of God are all about it. He is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, every grace in abundance, that you may have enough of everything and do every good work. That's out there. And what we're supposed to do is believe it and in the strength of that future grace, step into those acts of obedience. Not looking backward and saying, thank you for that grace and trying to do future acts of obedience in the power of past grace. You can't run your car tomorrow in gratitude for yesterday's gas. you got to have more grace for more obedience. And if you try to do your obedience, whether it's missions or anything, on yesterday's grace, you nullify grace, you belittle future grace, you nullify the promises of God, which are all there to empower you and free you to step out onto that wonderful grace and live in it. So for those three reasons, I urge you not to do the debtor's ethic or the tonto ethic. So, what's the alternative? This has all been kind of warning. Watch out how you serve God. Don't serve him as though he needed anything. Don't serve the Son of Man because he came to serve you. Don't get into the tonto ethic by which you look back on how much he did serve you and then leave that in the past and try to serve him and obey him and pay off your debts to him in the future by obedience and sacrifice. Don't do any of that. That's the negative. So let me try to shift gears now and put an alternative in its place. And it all has to do with prayer. How do you serve God? How do you move into the future with acts of obedience and service in such a way so that he gets the glory you get the enablement, the liberty, the freedom, the joy, the power. The answer uh, is by faith in future grace mediated to you through prayer. Prayer becomes the issue here. Let me give you a few key texts here. Psalm 50, verses 12 to 15. Or just, let's just stay with verse 15. Call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Now, to me, that sums up what prayer is all about and how it relates to this morning's message. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you because of that deliverance, will glorify me. So you get the deliverance, he gets the glory. You get the help, he gets the praise. You get the joy, he gets the credit. 
Now, to me, that is awesomely good news. The only people that don't hear it as good news are people who have this deep, deep, deep bondage to wanting the credit, the glory. I did it. It was my will. It was my resources. It was my power. And I want the praise. And I want the glory. And I want the credit. If that's the way your heart still functions, a verse like this will not sound very good. It will sound threatening. Call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. You know why that just does not sound like good news? It means I'm weak. I'm in trouble. All of my life I'm in trouble. Right now, you're in trouble. You're leaving books unread and papers unwritten to be here. There's weight upon you. Things are rotten at home. Your dad and mom are divorced or you just noticed how bad it is when you went home or your sister, your brother flipped out on drugs or your aunt is leaving her husband and there's just so much bad news in the world. We're in trouble all the time. There's no time. Dr. Ross Anderson graduated with me in 68 and came down here to pray with me. And we were talking in the car on the way over tonight how good life is for us 52-year-olds right now. We both walked through some deep waters in our past. And at this particular season, things are so sweet in our families. Kids are walking with the Lord, and our marriages are sweet, and our church is healed, and we our our body is basically healthy. And we were just saying, why so much goodness all at once? And yet I know that if I were to if I were to really probe Ross and his wider circle of love, there'd be pain there, right here, right there, where you are. So when I when I quote this verse, call upon me in the day of trouble, I hope you don't have that thing, oh, one day I might get into trouble, you know. One day I might do missions, and there might be a mob, and then I'll use that verse. Use that verse every day, because if, if you don't realize you're in trouble, you're you're blind. You don't know Satan well enough. You need to get to know him a little bit. Because he's never on vacation, and he, his minions are everywhere, and your own flesh is not totally crucified, and there are pitfalls everywhere. Temptations are lurking at all hands, and there is a need to cry to the Lord. We are very weak, we are very helpless, and God is awesomely sufficient for these things. So, Psalm 50, 12 is an answer, I mean 15, is an answer to the question, how do you how do you serve God so that God gets the glory? And one piece of the answer is you call upon God for help and you rest in the help that he promises. I will deliver you and in that you will glorify me. You get the help. I get the glory. Prayer is meant to be very good news. Don't wear prayer as a ball and chain around your neck. Let me put two verses together for you 
John 16.24 says, Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So here's Jesus telling you, the point of prayer is joy. Don't miss that. The point of prayer is your joy. Then, compare that with John 14.13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the point of prayer is the glory of God. We're getting close to the main point of this series of messages. The main point of prayer is joy for you. And the main point of prayer is glory for God. If you get that, then you don't need to come back tomorrow. You don't need to. That the glory of God and the joy of his people are pursued in the heart of God as the same thing. Not at all. Or I like to say, and I'll say it probably every message from here on out, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And prayer is the place where those two things meet. God's being glorified and you're being satisfied meet in a moment of prayer where you say, I'm weak, I'm empty, I'm helpless, I'm hurting, I'm inadequate, I'm a nobody at Wheaton College, everybody seems smarter than I am, everybody seems to be connected, everybody's got relationships, everybody seems to know what they're going to do, and I am so Would you help me? Would you be my friend? Would you be my sufficiency? Would you be my strength? Would you be my treasure? Would you be my all in all? You going to sing that one? And he will do that for you. He'll be that for you. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world, seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward him. Is that your view of God? That God is so self-sufficient, so full, so all-defining, so free from need, so free from defect, so free from any kind of dependence on us, that his whole occupation is to move through the world looking for people to work for. Where is somebody weak enough, needy enough, dependent enough, and trusting enough, and broken enough, that I can move in there and show off my power? I I say it only in times and places where it will be heard with sympathy, God is a show-off. Did you ever ask why it took ten plagues to get out of Egypt? We're told in chapter 14 why. 
He meant to get glory over Pharaoh. And one wasn't enough. God loves to show off his glory. And his glory is always showed off with helping power for those who wait for him. Here's another verse. Isaiah 64, 4. What I have seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. What that means when you stop and think about it is there, there are no other gods. No eye has seen a God. No ear has heard a God like you who works for those who wait for him. In other words, all the other gods of all the other religions insist that you work for them. And only in Christianity does a God say, you dare not work for me. I will work for you. And prayer is the means by which we renounce self-reliance and call upon him to work for us and rest in him to be the worker. I want, I want to get this picture in your head. In Isaiah 46, there's a picture where God is contrasted with the Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. You ever heard of these gods, Bel and Nebo? Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. These things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been carried by me from your birth, carried from your womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Now, what's the point here? I was giving you a little essay test in a Bible class on the difference between Yahweh and Bel and Nebo. What would the answer be? Give me a half a page on the difference. And the answer would be, well, Bel and Nebo, in their idle form, were being carried on these carts. And they were being carried, and the prophet sees Bel and Nebo being carried on carts. And he says, some God. They have to be carried by human work or the work of an ox. Speak, Lord, and identify your difference over Baal and Nebo. And God says, I do all the carrying. I do all the bearing. I do the work. Well, how does that feel? What's that look like? I mean, that's nice language. But you've got to leave here and go do some homework probably later. God going to do it? Well, well, he works for those who wait for him. And you're here because of some kind of priority structure in your life that has implied, I'm put the best reading on your being here, Maybe you just like the music, for all I know. 
But it might be that you are saying in your heart, I'm weak, I'm needy, and I think there might be some truth there tonight that will come into me from you and by your spirit be used to sustain, help, carry, and enable, and empower me to get through another day. That's a real good motive for being here. Does God conceive of service like that? I said at the beginning, don't serve God. Here's some key verses. I'm almost done. Key verses to help you see service another way than the debtor's ethic or the condo ethic. 1 Peter 4.11 comes back to me as the ministry philosophy of my life more than any other verse, I suppose. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever. Well, that moves from such a practical thing to such a glorious ending. Let him who serves, and, and you're going to serve tonight. I hope you will anyway going to do those lessons in a serving way. But this text says it's possible to leave this place in 45 minutes or so or whenever the first band is done and, and go home and do it like this. Let him who does homework do it in the strength that God supplies so that in the homework God gets the glory through Jesus. Wouldn't you love to discover that and how you do that? I'm still discovering it. The miracle of the Christian life. Do your hospital visitation in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God gets the glory by that visit. Do your preaching tonight, right now, tomorrow morning in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God gets the glory. Date in such a way that God does the dating and gets the glory. That changed the way you conceive of dating. Guard you from a lot of things. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I but the grace of God, which is with me. There's the paradox. You are going to go home and do it tonight. You're going to do the reading, you're going to do the writing, you're going to do the thinking. You're going to do it. But if you do it right, when you're done, you're going to be able with integrity to say, it was not I, but the grace of God. That was with 1 Corinthians 15.10. Make that a lifelong discovery path for yourself. How do I discover how to do everything I do, whether sending or going, whether homework, whether employment? Maybe you're a night watchman. you got to stay up all night tonight. How do you do that in the strength that God supplies? Or one last verse on this. Philippians 2.12 and 13. Work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So you are doing the homework. You will choose to go as a missionary or send because God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So yes, there's you doing it, but no, it's not you. It's the grace of God that is with you. Let me close by giving you the most practical thing I have found in moving toward this kind of of uh, non-tanto ethic way of living and depending on grace and seeking by prayer to get the resources to live like that. I call it APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. And uh, it's an acronym for these five things. When you face a challenge, a test in a class, a hard confrontation with somebody that needs a rebuke, whether to talk to a missionary representative here about the possibility of laying your life out for the cause of Christ in that way, some hard relationship and you get out of, whatever. When you face something like that, what steps do you take so that you are not relying upon yourself, but relying upon sovereign grace so that when you're done, you can say, I did it in the strength that God supplied so that God gets the glory. What can you do? A. After A. Admit that without God, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. So the heart, the heart is just a symbol of, of everything else. My heart is beating, and I have nothing to do with it. You can't do anything of any lasting value apart from Christ. So just admit that. So as you face this test, say, I can't do this. Without you, I can't do the test. I can't do the relationship. I can't do the mission thing. Can't do it. P. App. P. Pray and call upon God for help. Call upon Him. Ask Him for help. Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. I'll help you. I'll come. I won't leave you alone. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Therefore, you, you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? So P is pray. T, trust a particular promise. A, admit you can't do it without him. P, pray for help. T, trust a promise. Trust a particular promise. Now, to do this, you need to store up promises in your heart. There are hundreds of promises in the Bible tailor-made for your life. So, I always walk through this app-tap before I preach. I sit there, and if the last song is being sung, or prayer is being prayed, or an introduction is being given, I'm walking, A, get through it, B, God help me, T. Now, the T changes all the time because of what I've been reading in my devotions in the morning or the day before. And I try to take it right off the front burner of my communion with the Lord. 
And this morning, actually, it came from, I guess, two days ago. I'm reading through the Psalms, and um, Psalm 3119 has been so good. And it says, Oh, how abundant is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, and wrought for those who take refuge in thee. Now, I take that as a promise. John Piper, I have goodness stored up for you that is absolutely staggering in its size. If you will fear me and take refuge in me. I I love those two qualifications, fear and refuge. Usually we run away from things we fear, not into them. And that verse says, fear me and take refuge in me. The safest place, in fact, the only safe place from the fearful wrath of God is in God. So take refuge in him if you fear him. And it will be evidence of your fear. And your fears will be relieved. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. Because I was in two separate places. When grace taught my heart to fear, I was running from him. And when grace, my fears relieved, I turned to him and ran into him. Found relief in the covert of this hurricane. There's no safer place in a hurricane than in the eye of the storm. That's another sermon. The point there was to illustrate trust in promises. And the promise for me for the last two days has repeatedly been... John Piper, and I I usually use these kinds of language. I I say, John Piper, I'm God talking to you here. I have incredible goodness stored up for you. I've told you about it in Psalm 31.19. And so, fear me and take refuge in me. And then, A-A-P-T-A, A-P-T-A, act. you got to do it. You gotta read the books tonight. You gotta write the papers. I gotta preach. I gotta go home and get ready for tomorrow morning. That's a do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you act. Having done those three. And when you have acted, now I'm, I'm done acting. I'm gonna go sit down. And as I go and we worship, I'm gonna say, what do you think the last T is? Yeah. You're going to thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for helping me. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the energy. Thank you for the insight. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the promises. Lord, prayer is such a precious gift. It's designed for our joy and your glory. And we take it as a gift. We receive it right now. And I pray for these students especially and other guests who are here that you would cause the gift of prayer to come to them with new freshness so that when they go home tonight, even as they walk along the pathways, they would whisper prayers to you. I need you. I'm helpless without you. I pray for your enablement. Show me your promises. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word. Help me with this test. Help me with this paper. Help me with this relationship. 
Help me know whether I should go into missions. Help me to be humble. Take away my love of money. Take away my bondage to pornography. God, come. I need you. Help my mom and dad. May they just live in prayer. May they breathe prayer. Because it is such a precious gift. It is the key to serving in the strength that you supply. That in everything you might get the glory. And that's the desire of our heart. Whether in going or in sending. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.